series on Acts. It has been uh, both informational and revelational. And that's a new word for you guys. It's, uh, it's been blessing us. Today we'll be in Acts chapter 5. There's a lot of goodies here, and, and we're going to start off, I believe, with uh, Ananias and Sapphira. I know it's somewhere in the chapter, so got some interesting uh, subject matter, to say the least, to plow through. All right, let's give it up for our pastor and visionary leader, Joe Irostek. My brother, thank you. All right, let's open up to Acts chapter 5. It's so good to be here in the presence of the Lord. How many of you all love Jesus? Amen. I hope that you have been getting some good nuggies out of the book of Acts as we've been going through it. Let's uh, look at the introduction of what we're going to go through today. Today in chapter 5 of the Pentecostal Handbook, we learn that the disciples not only benefited from the Spirit's power, but also received His judgment and garnered the Jewish leader's wrath. Ooh. However, God grew the church and continued to do miracles among the people. So that's something that I want you to see. The blessing of the Holy Spirit came with two different outcomes. One was the judgment that would come into the church. So judgment would come. And also, it garnered them the attention. They got the attention of the religious world, and then they began to be persecuted. So there wasn't only uh, what we would say positive effects. Now, I do believe that the judgment in the church is a positive thing, but negative for those who are receiving it because they died, okay? And in, 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 uh, that's what we would call retributive judgment. Retribution is when it's over, it's done, boom, this is your penalty. Restorative judgment is what uh, primarily the church does in church uh, discipline, and that is to restore the person back into their place. And you can see restorative judgment in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where Paul puts out this uh, man who was having an affair with his stepmom, and then he's brought back in in uh, 2 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians, he's put out. 2 Corinthians, he's put in. And that is uh, restorative judgment. But what we see here is retribution, retributive uh, judgment. And so that can be like, in a sense, like a negative, like you're not happy about that. You don't want people to die. But that's a result. That's a result of the Holy Spirit being in the church. And then also you may say, well, I don't want to be persecuted. I don't want to suffer persecution. But that was another result of the church. So Acts here, chapter 5, kind of summarizes those two things. Uh, Yuli and Joby, can you guys move your table a little bit that way? That way I can get both of you. Thank you. Acts chapter 5, verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. Verse 7, about three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. 
Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the Holy Spirit, test the Spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. That's judgment right there. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church. And all who heard about these events, how many of you would have from some fear if that happened? Fear would seize your heart because you would now see how serious it is. So there's a couple things that we need to understand about this. So let's uh, kind of look at uh, what we see here. First, let's see that the problem with Ananias and Sapphira is that they pledged to give all the money from the property they sold, but they had lied and kept back some from themselves. When we go back to see here, Peter says, was it not your land? You could have done whatever you wanted with it. And even after you sold it, wasn't the money at your disposal that you could have done whatever you wanted? So it seems like they had said after they sold the property, we're going to give this all now to the Lord. So that's how the timeline would make sense. So they have the property. They can do whatever they want with it. They sell it, get the money. They can still do whatever they want with it. But at that point, they make the pledge and say, this money is now for the church. And so once they did that, they gave their word to giving all of it. Then at some point later, both Ananias, the man, and Sapphira, the wife, conspire to keep part of it back, a portion. That is their sin. They didn't have to sell the land, and after selling the land, they didn't have to give it all. But once they made their pledge, they needed to give it all. The next thing that we see is that Peter says, they lied not to men, but to the Holy Spirit in verse 3. And then in verse 4, it says, you have lied to God. This is one of the best passages to show the divinity of the Holy Spirit, equal to the Father and the Son. And so if you didn't catch it, let's see how they were Trinitarians by experience, or we would say experientially Trinitarian. As I talked yesterday about panentheism, we use theological terms as cup holders, as jacket racks, as coat racks, rather, to hold our belief systems. We summarize our doctrines with these phrases. Well, one of them is that the Trinity expresses the doctrine of three persons in one God, sharing the essence of God in three individual persons. Now, had they said that yet, the word Trinity? Had they said three persons and one God? No, they hadn't said that as a term yet, but they were experientially believing that and teaching that, and then over time, they wanted a place to put the belief system that they had. So they came up with a place to take off their jacket of beliefs and put it on a coat rack. Doing that is what we call theology. To take your belief, which is the belief of three divine persons and one God, and then put it up somewhere or place the cup on a cup holder is what theological terms are for. So if someone said, where is the word Trinity in the Bible? We would say the word Bible is not even in the Bible. But these are terms that we set our doctrines on. These are terms that we place on, uh, we place our beliefs upon these terms so that you and others can understand them. 
So he was a Trinitarian experientially because for him to say you've lied to the Holy Spirit in verse 3 and have kept back for yourself some of the money, and then in verse 4, for him to say that you have not lied to, uh, to men, but you have lied to God right there at the end, not human beings, but to God, shows us the Holy Spirit is who? Who is the Holy Spirit? God. Now, is he the Father? No. Is he the Son? No, but is he equally God as the Father and the Son are God? Yes. And how many gods are there? One. And how many names for God are there? One, singular. In the name, singular, of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. What is the singular name of the God of the Bible? Yahweh. That's what he said his name is. I am that I am. Tell them that I am has sent you. That's what he told Moses to tell them that is his name. His name is Yahweh. You can call him God, which comes from our uh, Nordic trans. Uh, just look up the etymology of God. I believe it comes from a Nordic uh, good, you know, G-U-D, but we'll see. But uh, our English word God traces its origin into different, you know, uh, languages. And the same thing is with Elohim. Elohim of the Hebrew traced its, its uh, origin into the Semitic languages of the Middle East. But Yahweh is the specific name of our God. That is who he is. He is Yahweh, and Yahweh is God. Yahweh is Elohim. He is the great, all-powerful being. So that word, Elohim, can relate to any kind of God. But Yahweh is our God, and Yahweh is the only true God. Amen? So there's only one God, and that God shares his nature, his essence, with three divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is not one God with one person who sometimes appears as the Father, appears as the Son, appears as the Holy Spirit. That's what a oneness Pentecostals wrongly teach. And let me warn you about them right now. Let me take a moment to warn you about oneness Pentecostals. There are three that are online right now, and some of you are sharing their stuff. Uh, Marcus Rogers is a oneness Pentecostal. Stop sharing his things. He is anti-Trinitarian. Different Reformed brothers from Apologia Radio tried to confront him, and he sassed back and refused to debate. He is a oneness Pentecostal. The other one that goes, uh, this is whatever, whatever. Yeah, Josh Fierstein. He is a oneness Pentecostal, and now... The Latino guy hanging with Marcus Rogers testifying of a healing that got a million views that Joe B. sent. I am assuming he is a oneness Pentecostal because he said he got out of church with Marcus Rogers and they made a video in the van worshiping together. And you put the video on your Facebook page. Yeah, look on your Facebook page. You'll see you share a video of a Latino guy talking about a woman getting healed from cancer. He is friends with Marcus Rogers. Do not fall for their deception. They appear that they're like us, but they are heretics. And what they want to do is draw you in by the commonality and then rebaptize you in Jesus' name only, tell you that you were never saved unless you were baptized in Jesus' name only, speaking in tongues, and then they want you to join their church because they believe their church or kind of apostolic church are the only kind of churches. This form of oneness Pentecostalism started in the early 1900s when they diverted from the Azusa Street Revival with the early Pentecostal preachers and developed a false doctrine out of Acts 2.38. 
which is this is the threefold way of being saved. Repent, be baptized in Jesus' name only, and then speak in other tongues. That is a false doctrine. We are saved by grace through faith. Peter was not contradicting Paul. We are not baptized in Jesus' name only. We're baptized in the authority of Jesus, which is the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. That's Jesus' baptism, just like John the Baptist had his baptism, etc. You see that when it says in Jesus' name, it means his, his baptism. And what did he tell us to do in his baptism was to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. And then we are saved not because we speak in tongues, but because of the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. And the regeneration of the Holy Spirit is the evidence that you've been saved, not speaking in other tongues. Speaking in other tongues is the evidence you've been endued with power from the Holy Ghost. Because remember in Acts chapter 1, they are already saved because the Holy Spirit has been given to them in regeneration in Acts 20. And Paul, or rather Jesus says to them, you will now receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Not salvation. You will receive power. And what's the evidence in Acts chapter 2 that they received the power of the Holy Spirit. What was it, TJ? The speaking in other tongues. So to equate speaking in other tongues with being saved is false. To say you have to be baptized in Jesus' name, literally in Jesus' name, is false. We're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. And to say you have to repent and do all of these things to be saved by doing good works is false. It's faith in Christ that saves you and allows you to repent and do so do so forth. Where does the actual English word God come from? Is it Nordic? Uh, there's, there's Germanic. Germanic. Let's just say Germanic languages. There we go. That's what I was going for. I said Nordic, but Germanic languages. So we see that they were Trinitarian by experience. And what is that gentleman's name? Matt Cruz. Be careful with Matt Cruz as well. Matt Cruz, Marcus Rogers, and Josh Fergenstein. All of them seem to be promoting the oneness Pentecostal doctrine, and they're unteachable. And I say that with all humility. They're unteachable. And God have mercy on their souls, okay? I can't say whether or not they'll go to hell because you know what? God's merciful. But with the way most of them are rejecting the Trinity, the way Marcus Rogers came out against the Trinity and called it pagan, I think that means you've crossed the line. I think God is merciful to those who share common doctrines with us because there's enough truth in there. For example, I feel like God is merciful to, to many Roman Catholics because there's enough truth in there for them to be really saved and them not understand everything else. And God will lead them to the truth. Also with oneness Pentecostals, I believe there's enough truth there. But the moment they start rejecting the sound doctrine of the Trinity, rejecting the things we're teaching them, helping clarify to them, show them the way better as Priscilla and Aquila, as we'll see in the book of Acts did with Apollos, when they're actually coming against it, and now they're divisive, and they're standing to the belief system, I believe now to whom much is given, much is required. They are not ignorant of the truth. They are held accountable to that. Amen? And the Bible says that we who are teachers will be held to a higher standard. So these three young men need to be held to a higher standard because they're on Facebook having fans. And let me tell you, you can have fans on Facebook but not be making discipleship and not be making disciples in ministry. Okay, somebody put that on Facebook for me. You can have fans on Facebook and not be making disciples. How about put it like this? I don't want a fan-based Facebook ministry. I want a discipleship-based ministry. That's a good one to share. Amen. As you can tell, I've gotten pretty excited about what we can do on Facebook now. That's like my new thing. Put it on Facebook. 
Next thing that we see, which is quite interesting, because God does the judging. I don't think there's much to be said about this. Maybe I should just pause here for a second and say, yeah, it is pretty shocking that God judged that severely at that moment. But it's no more shocking than Uzzah being struck down for touching the Ark of the Covenant during that time with David as well. Uh, And so we need to be very careful with the things of God. It wasn't Peter's idea for the judgment to come by death. It was God's initiative, and Peter went along with it. So let's not try to start saying that we in the church can command people to die. What it is is God saying this is what he's going to do. Did he do that at all times? No, because we never really hear about it again, and I'm sure that people did lie in the church about finances. Maybe not immediately. I'm sure that kept the church holy in that regards. But uh, it doesn't mean they died all the time. I think there was just a severity here because God wanted to show them and us for all times as record that God takes serious the church, and he's going to hold us accountable. So this kind of idea, which a lot of times you'll hear as greasy grace and sloppy agape, it's not really in the Bible. Sometimes people will say, well, once you're a Christian, God will never judge you. You don't even have to confess your sins again. They're already all forgiven. That's Joseph Prince. Joseph Prince teaches that false doctrine, a famous preacher from Singapore, that once you're forgiven, you don't ever have to confess a sin again. To do that would be like condemnation. God already knows and already forgives, past, present, and future. So they mix a part of the doctrine of atonement there with the they 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 make the true which is God did already pay for my future sins because he doesn't die again that is true but they then confuse that with confession but I still am responsible for for confessing confessing my sins and so you could say it like this I have cleared all possible debt that you could ever account um, um, have on this American Express card but every time you spend something you have to bring me the receipt and 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 be accountable to it you know in that sense God has cleared all the possible sins we could ever sin, but we have to come and bring them to them in actual time to be forgiven. Does that make sense? And so once again, Joseph Prince teaching that false doctrine, and in that false doctrine comes the mindset that God will never judge you. Only grace now. There's no fear of judgment, and that's taking 1 John out of context because the fear of punishment that he says we don't have because perfect love drives out all fear, and fear has to do with punishment, has to do with us going to hell. There's no fear of a Christian ever going to hell. But Paul said, I even come in fear and trembling, therefore knowing the terror of the Lord, he also said at another another place, I persuade men. And so the idea is, and you even see in the book of Revelation, is Christians will be judged by Jesus. And Jesus judges his churches in the book of Revelation. And then uh, Paul talks about our works being judged, and that which remains will, will be rewarded for. And so... I just really believe this is one of those points in history where it's just a special moment. God is saying, don't lie. Don't play around with this church because the church is going to be the vessel in which God uses to fill everything in every way. Just like we learned yesterday in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 23, it's that he is using the church to fill everything in every way. And by the way, this is a taste, a foretaste of the kingdom to come. In the millennial reign, people will drop dead in our courtrooms as we judge them, should it be deserving of death. That's how justice will be laid out. Don't confuse that with the Islam, the Sharia law of Islam. They See, here's the difference. Let me just say this in case you ever hear a Muslim bring this back on you, because they'll say you believe in the same type of stuff we do. There's one clear distinction. We do believe in a theocracy coming, but it's Jesus coming from heaven and establishing it. The owner of the earth comes back. The owner of the vineyard comes back. Theirs is opposite. They conquer and kill and set up the kingdom, and then the kingdom is blessed 
by Allah. So it's their job to initiate the kingdom. And that's why that demonic prophet Muhammad was a warlord. Because he thought he was going to take over the whole world and that would be the kingdom. That would be it. Now, they believe that right when the world is about ready to be conquered, Jesus, our Jesus, uh, make-believe Jesus, let's put it that way, but the Jesus that would be um, what they would say is the Bible Jesus, but it's not, will come back, fight in a battle with Muhammad, kill the Antichrist, but then he himself will die, and then the world will be conquered. So they have one little, like, eschatology there that's similar to us, but it's still, it's like, well, they say, we believe in Jesus coming back too, but it's all off because they're saying our Jesus comes back and loses and dies, which is silly, okay? But once again, they still believe literally men fight, and God never comes to earth. God never rules and reigns. So for all of eternity, there's just a kingdom on the earth of Muslims, and whenever they die, they just go to Jannah and then go there. So that's kind of like how all history is supposed to be on for eternity. So there's never a point where, like, heaven comes to earth, any of those things. It just kind of ends with there always being a Muslim population ruling this earth, and that's the way it's supposed to end. Uh, and, and then maybe everybody just goes to heaven. But there's never, like, a heaven coming to earth or ruling and reigning. So just to let you guys understand. So, yes, if even liberals say to you, well, you guys believe in this and this and that. Yeah, but Jesus initiates that. And when he comes back, if you want to argue with him, that's up to you. But literally, he's going to come around the whole earth. Everybody's going to see him, and then boom, destroy about 300 million people on the day of, of Armag on the Battle of Armageddon. And at that point, all the mouths are going to be shut. And it's like, okay, yeah, he's he's pretty much God. Everything that we were asking for as atheists, like I want to see a sign, I want to see him in the sky. Well, just wait, you will. The only problem is once you see that, you'll be screaming for the rocks to fall on you because you'll know how terrifying that really is. Because because God is not your puppet. That you're just like, come and show yourself to me. Oh, okay, now I believe in you. Like, you'll understand what God in its entirety, what that doctrine actually meant when he comes and terrifies the nations, the Bible says. So great fear was in the church because the Spirit was present to reveal God's power in many ways, and that included judgment. So now we understand that judgment will come first to the church, Paul said, and then to the world. And so God is still judging the church through the uh, apostolic doctrine. And that's why, like I was saying before in 1 Corinthians 5, we do make judgments in the church by disfellowshipping people because of false doctrine, bad behavior, etc. And we're starting what we would call like a subculture, a mini community. And there's an excommunication. And that's to show you that one day there's going to be an excommunication off the planet into the lake of fire. So that's why the Bible says, hey, if judgment comes to the church first, what do you think it's going to be like when judgment comes to the people. So right now, like everybody out there, you know, they're just running around doing their stuff going, oh man, those crazy Christians, they're like nitpicking at each other. You know, let's say maybe they heard about somebody getting put out the church because they committed an affair, you know, had an adulterous affair, wouldn't repent, wanted to stay with the adultery, you know, and the, the lover they're with or whatever. And then they get put out the church and they're talking to somebody at a bar and they're like, man, those crazy Christians, I mean, look at you. I mean, you haven't gone to hell yet. I mean, you're fine. I mean, just go to another church. Like they have no idea what's coming. What the church just did in enacting that judgment was for their soul, was to show them this little place here, we've told you, you've disobeyed God, now you have to leave this place and repent, and hopefully you'll come back in here. But if you don't, you're going to hell, right? Like That's like a little picture, and they may say, that, you know, that church over there, and you can even see here these little house churches, that's a joke, you know, in Corinthians, they're putting this guy, oh, that's a joke, you know, you had big big pagan temples. And it's just like, we'll just go back to the pagan temple. Go get a pagan prostitute. Who cares? You know? But the whole idea is, no, no, no. This is a picture of the kingdom to come. 
when the actual king comes to the earth and judgment is done once and for all. So thank God for the church that enacts judgment in this subculture right now. Amen. Thank God for a church that keeps us accountable to the commands of God, that there's a people that are an alien race, a new humanity that don't belong here on the wicked planet the way it is. And we're here as sojourners, and we're here abiding our time, making more disciples, getting people to join with us, because once our Lord and Savior comes, the new humanity is going to be with us. Amen? Okay, something to think about. Now let's go on. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. So Paul, uh, Luke rather likes to always remind us of that because it's the Pentecostal handbook. Written by Pentecostals for Pentecostals and now read by Pentecostals. The apostles, and let's just notice this right here. In these first five chapters, it's all the apostles. Starting in the next few chapters, as the deacons get ordained, notice now how signs and wonders will start happening through them as well. But take note that it's letting us know the apostles are doing these things by God's grace because that is a promise being fulfilled that Jesus said he would work with them, okay? So the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. All the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade, which we know as Solomon's porch. That's that part around the temple that had the pillars there. We've already seen a picture of that. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their numbers. Excuse me. Verse 15. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. So we see Peter's batting a hundred right now, batting a thousand rather. He's doing great. The apostles are with him. We see that it doesn't always end up that way. But there is a special move of God upon these men. And they were really seeing it as the initiation of the church. Signs and wonders are happening. The shadow of even Peter is healing people. And, and this, once again, is a promise to Peter. We don't want to neglect Peter because we don't believe he's the first pope. We do want to believe he's the first example of the disciples. He's the first example because that's what Jesus said. Just like we don't put down Mary. We recognize Mary was chosen for a precious task. We just don't pray to Mary. We don't mean, we, we don't equate honor Mary with pray to Mary's statues. Does everybody get that? And we don't equate Peter's the first of the bad boys, like the apostles, to let's make Peter a pope infallible. And now everyone Peter anoints after him in the genealogy of popes are going to be infallible. It's like, no, like, no. Let's just keep it where it's at. Peter was the first to recognize Jesus as the Messiah, and he's the first to start seeing the gospel being preached, signs and wonders, and he's leading them in that way. But as time goes on, we, we begin to see that James, the brother, half-brother of Jesus, actually becomes um, the leader of the church. So, we, you know, we don't have to, like I said, we don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Let's keep uh, looking at some of the notes here. Luke records the signs and wonders continued, and they began to have a central meeting spot in the temple area. So that started to become their central meeting spot, also known as Solomon's Porch. And, and what we can probably get into their mindset here is that they're actually thinking Jesus is going to come back pretty soon. So they're staying in Jerusalem, forgetting that he said Judea, Samaria, and to the other most parts of the world. And so we're going to see here in a little bit what actually pushes them out of Jerusalem is going to be persecution. But they're pretty much like camping around the temple going, hey, guys, I'm thinking he's coming back here pretty soon. Let's just keep talking to the Jews. They're not even getting the full revelation yet that they got to go to the Gentiles. Like it hasn't even set in. And you're going to see that's going to become a quite a controversy as everybody starts to realize like, oh, 
we got to tell the non-Jewish people, too, about the gospel. Oh, and they're all over the world, you know. They're not just like a couple here in uh, Jerusalem. we got to go actually to Rome, and we've got to go over here to India, and we've got to go to Egypt, and we've got to go to Asia. You, you see that transformation of mindset coming to them. Next thing that we notice here is that Luke records no one dared join them in verse 13. Did you catch this? And then in verse 14, he said, nevertheless, more and more men and women believed. Is that a contradiction? No, it's actually complementary because the church's growth was not from popularity, but rather spirit-led evangelism. You could read into the, the, the verbiage here what Luke is saying is no one dared join them out of popularity, out of peer pressure, or to be cool. They were not popular in man's sight. That's not why anyone joined them. There was no reason for an upgrade in social status to join them. Now, eventually, when Christianity became legal in 313 with Constantine in the Edict of Milan, now it became part of the popular culture to be Christian, and then that's where we see people going off into the deserts to start monasteries to get away from a lukewarm Christianity. But that is not the case here, and it won't be for 300 years. They are going to suffer. They are going to be the refuge of the world. Paul literally said, the garbage, we are the scum of the earth. We're led out in the procession at the first as the as the captured fools, the ones that they're going to put in the gladiator arenas to die miserable deaths. That's who Christians were. We were lit on fire. Like I said, Roman candles literally were people being impaled and set on fire on Roman streets, and that's what they did to Christians, okay? So it's not contradictory. It's complementary showing how the church grew. It grew by the Spirit. Now, I'm going to read this whole account here of what happens with them being arrested. So it's going to be a little bit lengthy, but there's no reason to break it down. It's just basically one story that he tells here. Let's look at verse 17. Then the high priests and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there, so they went back and reported, We have found the jail securely locked, but the guards standing at the door, with the guards standing at the door, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined, you're determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on the cross. Let me just tell you once again, you are at fault. That's the fourth time he's done that. 31, and they're getting the point, aren't they? You keep putting this on us. Yes, because it's your fault. 
your whole nation. Verse 31, God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Now notice that. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He, Jesus, were witnesses of him by the Holy Spirit, whom God the Father has given to those who obey him. The hymn is Jesus. Experientially Trinity. We get, remember that. These are wonderful nuggies to pick up. Verse 33. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. So now we see just when a, within a few weeks of Pentecost, they now want to kill them all. They want to kill them all. Notice how in verse 28, the leaders are totally aware that the apostles' preaching places the blame on the entire nation of Israel and their leadership because they are guilty for causing Jesus to die. And now because of that, now they want to command them to stop. Paul, uh, Peter rather says we'd rather obey God than human beings. Can I hear an amen to that? The application to that is obvious. And then we see the Trinity there in their preaching. So once again, if somebody goes, hey, you know, like a Jehovah Witness, where's the Trinity in the book of Acts? We don't see it. If it was so important, why aren't they talking about it? We're already in chapter 5, and I think we've seen about at least five or six references to the Trinity, if not more. Because they're always talking about God in the sense of the Father. That's how they related to God as the Father. They would always give him that title, God. They always refer to Jesus as Lord, and the moment somebody says to you, well, that means God is always the Father and Jesus being Lord is something less. No, because Lord to them is Yahweh. They're taking the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, our God, is one. So in their mind, Paul, along with the disciples, just said, God, the Father, Yahweh, Jesus. Now, they didn't believe in you know, a Yahweh and an Elohim being separate. Sometimes you'll meet these little fringe cults that will try to say God the Father is an Elohim God because he's always called God the Father. And then Jesus is Yahweh God. And actually, um, that's a bit of confusion that Mormons have. I just heard that when Matt Slick debated a Mormon. They believe that the Father is Elohim and Jesus is Yahweh. You can't separate them either because Yahweh always says he's Elohim and Elohim always says his name is Yahweh. You can't do that. But just what they did and experientially and um, contextually, they would always say God the Father and the Lord Jesus, knowing there's only but one God and but one Yahweh, but those were their designated titles to help you know that they were divine persons in the Trinity. Can I hear an amen? You got to believe that. You got to see those nuggies that are there. Okay, now let's hear what Gamaliel says. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do with these men. Some time ago, Theodos appeared claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Verse 38, therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. 
Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming, also preaching. The word proclaim and preach, they're the same. The good news, the gospel, that Jesus is the Messiah. Amen? Now let's look at what happened here. Now the first thing I want you to think about, and I want to see who knows this, especially Joe B. and others who are deep thinkers. How does Luke know what Gamaliel said? How does Luke know what Gamaliel said? This is also a reference, uh, the same kind of thing, to the references of the courts in the Gospels. How do we know what Herod said? How do we know what Pilate said? How do we get these behind-the-scenes discussions that it doesn't seem any of the apostles are there? It actually says they were told to leave. And yet we hear the entire dialogue. Is this fiction? Well, if it's not fiction, then how do we know? Did the Holy Spirit just simply say, I know what happened, Luke. Let me tell you. And then Luke just did that. Did Luke have to trust in the divine inspiration of the Lord just to know what happened there and say, okay, what happened, guys? Well, then he told us to leave, and then he told us to come back. Okay, well, uh, if I'm going to write this story, I need to know what happened from the time they were in and the time they left. So, uh, Holy Spirit, what happened? Joe B., how did, the, how did they know? Let's give it up for Joe B. Give a hand clap for them. There's actually a whole entire book written on the internal consistency of the Bible from that point of view. A scholar took his time to help you understand where people are at. Now, more than Pilate's wife, and for those who are online who did not hear the answer, the answer is, is that there were disciples that we find noted in the Bible, which would seem accidental but actually reveal these mysteries. Meaning, in the book of Acts, it says, as we get later on, that many from Herod's household get saved. Herod's household. So how do we now know the stories of Herod in his courtrooms, in his house, from those getting saved? It seems to be a dink. Luke puts it here, Mark puts it here, but oh my goodness, how do we know this is true? Oh, because God wanted you to know it was true. And now the same thing here. Gamaliel's talking. Who would know what Gamaliel would say? Oh, Paul, who references Gamaliel in Acts chapter 22 as his mentor. During this time, they're being polite to the Christians. They turn against them, and then they start allowing them to be killed. Remember being stoned? And then Paul is sent with orders to drag them out of all the synagogues and put them in jail. So he must have known this court case. He must have known what Gamaliel said, and he must have known when it changed to now go get those guys. We're not playing nice anymore. Great job, Joe B. I'm very impressed that you were able to do that. Now here's something else that we have to think about is was Gamaliel's advice biblical? Some of you said amen while I was reading it, but I want you to think about it being unbiblical advice. Let me read this first. Gamaliel, Paul's mentor in Acts 22, 3, advised the Jewish leaders to let God judge the disciples by watching to see if the church imploded by itself. This is not good advice to follow with false doctrine. They should have been willing to debate the issues, as in Acts 17, 11, like the Bereans, so it doesn't really have present application, but God used it to keep the disciples safe. 
one of the greatest errors in the early American church when Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons were prospering were people using Gamaliel's advice. They said, if Joseph Smith is not of God, it will implode on itself. Just leave those Mormons alone. If, if Jehovah Witnesses are not of God, just leave them alone. And that led to their explosive growth. If Gamaliel was truly a wise man, he would have said, let us debate them publicly. Let us show that their doctrines are false. Uh, but, but God would have used that then to teach them because at, at any point they actually had debate with the Jewish leaders, many people start getting saved, even the Jewish leaders. We'll read about that later. So it is, his advice was used by God, and there's a hint of truth in there that we can't fight against God. Yes, that's true, but we must take the truth of God against error. Do you guys see the difference? So we don't apply that to our life. We don't say, well, you know, someone in our church had a dream that they're supposed to be a prophet and do X, Y, and Z. Well, if it's of God, you know, they'll be blessed and we'll fight against God if we try to stop them. And if it's not of God, it will just, it will just die out anyway. No, because that could split the whole church. We must take the doctrines of God serious. We must reprove, rebuke, instruct, train in righteousness, as 2 Timothy says. Amen? Here's another little thing. I mean, this right here just shows you, uh, just if you can read over stuff and not get it, uh, these three words will change your life. Had them flogged. I mean, it just seems like it's not even that big of a deal. Oh, I just had them flogged, and then they rejoice and they go about preaching. Do we have any idea what that just meant? Have any of you been flogged publicly? Could you imagine what that was like? I want to show you from a commentary what they describe that to be like. But as you think about that, I want you to think about maybe as we've seen, you know, in, in the movies about slavery, watching a slave getting beat. I mean, just every part of me just makes my skin crawl. Just an innocent person to be beat. It, it, even though it doesn't kill them, right? Like, even though it doesn't kill them, it is just... So horrendous to watch because there's something, every part of us has a, every one of us has a part of us for justice. And we just feel for those who are being treated unjustly. So imagine you're sitting there and you're watching them get beat one after, this is your father, you know. This is your brother. These are your pastors and you're watching them get beat in public. But they said they rejoice for suffer, suffering that disgrace. Here's what the, um, the ESV study Bible notes. This time the Sanhedrin enforced their command by scourging the apostles. The text does not say whether it was with the maximum of 39 stripes prescribed by the Jewish law, but Paul says he received this three times in 2 Corinthians 11:24. So he was beat three times, 39 times, um, because they were commanded in the Old Testament, the Jewish people, not to beat beyond uh, 40 times, okay? The lashing consisted of striking the victim's bare skin with a tripled stripe of cow's hide. So it's three whips in one. This is not as bad as the Romans. The Romans were just absolutely brutal. This was a form in the Jewish faith, commanded by God, by the way, commanded by God in Deuteronomy, okay? Uh, and it has the reference right here, Deuteronomy 25. God commanded us to do this in the Bible. So it was, it was meant for criminals, though. It wasn't meant to kill them. The Roman scourging with the cat of nine tails could just kill you right there. 
just with the, the, nine, the nine different parts of the whip coming with the broken glass and, the, and the, the metal and all of that just ripping your skin out. That was just meant to totally just maim you, leave you basically dead or close to dead, right? Okay, so this is a shameful, just, I, I'm just only thing I can think of is the whipping of a slave. And I don't mean to say that in any disrespect to make our, our but I think it would be in a respectful way, actually, because it's like they were innocent and these Christians were innocent. Does that make sense, Sister Soldier? Because I don't want to just like bring it up to bring it up for no reason. I want to have a reason behind it. And that is innocently, and the idea is I want the slave to live. I, I want this slave, but I want this slave to feel humiliated. And that's what they wanted to do to the Christians. Three uh, cords coming out. Now watch this. They beat them twice on the back and then once on the chest, and they did that 13 times. That cycle was done 13 times. So what pap on the, on the back? What pap on the back? Then flip you over. And so it sounds like you're laying down or you're strung up like this, and then it's like on your chest getting whipped. 13 cycles of one, two, three. Do it again. One, two, three. They do this to all of the apostles. Now, it doesn't say how many of them were there. Could have been five. Could have been all, all 12. But it says all of them are whipped and beaten like this. And just, you know, it doesn't, I mean, literally, if this was like a reality show, it, it would say, um, let's, let's go right here. It would say, and he flogged them, and Joe screamed the first time. And then Joe started to weep the second time. You know, if this was like a novel, rather, or, you know, if you can just picture it. And then tears started coming down everybody's eyes. And the babies tried to, or the children tried to reach out to the dad. No, you know. But it literally just says, had them flogged, and then it just goes on. It shows how brave these men were how strong they were in their faith that they were willing to suffer like this and not turn their back on the Lord. I hope that you and I can do the same thing. And then we see that the disciples kept evangelizing and making new disciples. Just hearing at the end, they never stopped teaching and preaching. They never stopped teaching and preaching. You can just put the word preach there for proclaim. It's, a, it's the same word. They never stopped preaching and teaching. The good news that Jesus is the Messiah. I want to know, would you be willing to suffer like that for Jesus? Think about this in closing. Despite the early church witnessing God's judgment, like their two people died in our church, and despite being persecuted by Jewish leaders, being whipped 39 times, they kept working the word. And God worked with them with signs following, and new disciples were made. Would you please come on to the keyboard, and Joe, be unmute the keyboard for us, please. I want to take the extra time that we have today to pray. Let us first pray for the persecuted church that is actually suffering this way around the world. Amen. Father, we lift up to you the church of North Korea today, the church in the Islamic nations like uh, Afghanistan, Syria, Turkey. One of our pastors is arrested there right now. has been in jail a year. Oh, Lord, we lift up to you other communist nations like China and Vietnam, oh, Lord. We just pray for wherever there's dictatorship, wherever there's Islam, wherever there's communism, and the Christians are being oppressed, even with the drug lords in certain parts of Latin America and Central America where the uh, drug cartels persecute and kill the Christians, Lord. We pray that you will move in such a way right now to be with these brothers and sisters. Comfort them. May they not be discouraged. May they know and love you. May they find a peace and a hope in you. 
I pray for their families today, Lord, who don't have a loved one with them, maybe because they are in jail or maybe because they've died and been per- because of persecution. For those in God in jail even right now, may they find their peace in you, their love in you. May they f- find you to be there with them, present in the, in the midst of their suffering. And now, Lord, we also lift up to you our need to preach the gospel in this culture that does persecute us. And they ridicule us. They mock us. They, they want to take away our businesses. Uh, Lord, they want to tell us we can't talk about Jesus in the public squares and high schools and colleges and on our jobs. Lord, we, we pray that you'll protect us. First, in our country, protect our religious freedoms that are already in our laws, meant to protect us. Give our, <clears throat> excuse me, our judges wisdom and guidance to keep our laws just. <clears throat> excuse me, so that businesses don't have to support abortion and infanticide, so that we don't suffer because we stand up for your created order and gender and stand against perversion and sexuality. Lord, we ask you to use the law that is already there to protect us. And then, Lord, we pray for you now to use us to spread forth revival, <clears throat> that we would preach and teach and see revival spread across this land. Right now, pray for three places. Excuse me, you want to see revival come to Chicago right now. Three places. Three places you want to preach and teach the good news of Jesus with signs following. Jesus, right now, use us. Use us at Wright College today. Two visitors came yesterday. They did not know each other, but they came at the same day. I've been going there over a year, and I've never seen one visitor come in over a year. But in one day, I saw two come at the same time. Tell me that's not a testimony of God's goodness. Two who did not know each other, totally disconnected, came at the same service the same day. That's what happens when you're faithful. God will make you fruitful. God will make you fruitful. Name off those places right now. God, we pray for Elevate. We pray for the high schools. We pray for the college campuses, the communities that we witness that. We pray for the places that, Lord, we have ministry at right now. The life groups, these places, you'll, you'll show up, God. You'll show your power, your strength, your majesty. A few more moments praying for these places, and then we're going to intercede in the Spirit, and we're going to earnestly pursue the spiritual gifts. The Bible says eagerly desire spiritual gifts. So pray these praises out for God's revival to come. Intercede for them, and then just begin to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gives you utterance. And if the Lord gives you a prophetic word for somebody or something in the places you've been praying, write it down and get ready to share it when you go out or go with those people. Hallelujah. We love you, Lord. We love you, Lord. dreams and visions Lord stretch out your hand to heal through us words of wisdom and knowledge prophecy tongues and interpretation of tongues 
the working of miraculous powers, the discerning of spirits, whoa, the casting out of demons. Show yourself strong in and through our lives, God. In the name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, a few more moments. Pray, intercede. Seek the Lord while he may be found. You may feel free to walk around if you need to, to kneel, stand, or wherever you want to go. Let's pray for the next four minutes right now. Jesus, we are your called sons and daughters. We are your kingdom ambassadors. Yes, Lord, have your way. We pray for the nations. All the nations. We pray for your ministry to be coming through us in power, to come through us as you did in the book of Acts. We just don't want to read about it. We want to experience. We want to experience the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Here we are, God. Use us. Use us for your glory, for your power. Oh, we love you, God. We love you, Jesus. We desire you. You are the hope for the nations. Jesus. Jesus. Let us be sensitive to your spirit. To know how to operate in the gifts of the Holy Spirit in such a way that we can be fruitful. We can be fruitful without being weird and without being ineffective. I pray for the effectiveness of the Spirit, God. I pray for the effectiveness of when we give a word, God. When we lay hands on the sick, O oh Lord. So many things in our culture have taken away from the effectiveness of our, our spiritual gifts because people think we're making it up or it's not real. And then pastors sin and they bring down the character of the church so that people lose trust in what we're actually saying. Those of us who are genuinely experiencing your power. And Lord, we ask you to remove the disgrace from your church. Raise up disciples who are honest.
And when we say someone is healed, it really happened. We didn't make it up. And when we say we have a word, it's really from you, oh God. We're not speaking presumptuously so that, Lord, our preaching doesn't depend upon our wisdom, our persuasion, but it's based upon the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul said. I didn't come to you with men's wisdom. I didn't come to you with these philosophies of the world, but in power and demonstration, undeniable demonstration of the Holy Spirit. God among us. God among us. The Holy Spirit. Woo! Holy Spirit, use us. Use us. Pour out your fresh wine. Pour out your fresh wine. Yes. 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 Hallelujah. Oh, pour out your fresh wine, Holy Spirit. If you will be committed to being used by God, though it may be strange, but I'm not talking about being weird. I'm just saying you're willing to be committed to God and step out in faith and take a chance in the Holy Ghost to see something great. If that's you, would you just raise your hands with me and say, Lord, use me. Lord, see us here today and use us. Oftentimes, I feel we have not because we ask not, and we just we, we don't let the Lord use us because we feel we're going to be embarrassed. And we need to let God use us. Look up at me, please, in closing. Now, I remember one time I was going um, snowboarding of all places. you got to be ready in season and out of season. I was there by myself. It was a Monday. And I was there snowboarding during the day, and I saw two other guys snowboarding together. And you can get on the lifts, which can fit two to three people. And one of the times I got on with him as we're going back up to the hill, and I was like, yeah, man, isn't it great to be out here on a Monday? Nobody's out here. It's cool, you know. And he's like, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, what do you do for a living? And the moment those, uh, oh, no, no, no. I, I, uh, I said, it's great to be out here. And he asked me, what do you do for a living? Because, you know, it's strange to see dudes that, you know, like older guys like us out on the mountains that, you know, two o'clock in the afternoon on a Monday. It's like, what do you do? How can you do this? I go, I'm a pastor. This is my day off. I work Sundays, you know, whatever. And the moment I said back to him, what do you do? I felt the Lord tell me he was a police officer. He then responds back to me and he says, oh man, I do custodial work. I'm a janitor. At that moment, I felt that he was lying to me and that he was a police officer. And I didn't say anything. We, we go up the hill, you know, we come down, happen, you know, if you start at the same time, you're going to practically end at the same time we get down, then we go up again, and then this is what he says, ah, you know what, man, I, I don't usually tell people this, but since you're a pastor, I'll be honest with you, I'm a police officer, that's my partner, you know, we just don't like to tell people, obviously, because nobody really likes us, this and that, and I tried to preach the gospel to him after that, and I was like, you know, he, you know, well, Jesus loves you and all this, door was totally closed, I wonder what would have happened. If I would have said, bro, I think you're lying to me. I feel in my heart that the Lord told me you're a police officer. That would have changed the whole thing. Now, he's still responsible for rejecting the gospel. 
We're not here to prove it to them that they may believe, but I had a word, and it just, it just came as simple as any other thought. I just call our spirit radio stations, just as sometimes you'll get a demonic thought, like, go kill somebody, go hate them. You know, you'll be like, whoa, where did that come from? You know, the demon, you know, demon station 106, the station of the devil, put that right in. And then the same thing, heaven FM, here we go, he's a police officer. And it just, whoop just came so fast, I just, I was like, that can't be true, that can't be true, and you've got to be careful, and you've got to use wisdom, so if I would have said, dude, you're lying, no, you're pleased, I'd have been like, what are you talking about, you know, to just admit you're wrong, because you've got to learn how to hear from the Lord, and I would rather them lie to you, and you say, well, okay, maybe I'm wrong, and say you get into a fight with them, and like somehow, like, they have to now prove to you their entire life, you know, because I feel that's a lot of times I see the problems with prophetic people. Like they'll say something and sometimes it will be wrong instead of just adjusting going, I'm learning, I'm trying to do this better. Even as people experience, they hold on to it and it can discourage people. Because I remember one time we had a guest in the youth ministry and he called out one of our girls and he said, you've been contemplating suicide. And the girl's like, no, I haven't. She's like, literally, I haven't. And then it put it in her head like, have I? And, you know, it like made it all weird for her. And, and I told the guy and he just said, well, I just think she doesn't want to admit it. And I'm like, why can't you just say... I could miss God if that's true, you know, if that's true, you could actually go to her and say, if I miss God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Just pray about it. And if it's not for you, then I, you know, I'll, I'll admit I miss God. But they get so prideful, everything always has to be God. I just don't feel we're infallible. We don't need to do that. But I just feel like I should have said something to that guy. And it happens just every now and then. Just get a word. Just get a word. And you've got to be sensitive to speak it out. Amen. And maybe, I, you know, not like, you're lying, man. I could have just been like, you know what? I kind of felt in my heart that you were going to say you were a police officer. That's what I thought you were going to say. And then he might be like, dude, what make you think that? Because I am. And I'd be like, well, you know what? I'm actually a pastor. I felt like the Lord gave that to me. You see, I could have addressed it a certain way. And then if you would have been like, no, I'm not, you know, I'm not a police officer, then I could have backed out and said, okay. And then gone back to my prayer closet and said, okay, Lord, I'm practicing the prophetic. How do I hear your voice now? Because I don't want to just be making up stuff. Because it was really a clear word. And remember, Book of Acts is about 30 years. If you summarize my life in 30 years, you would think every day Joe's meeting somebody, getting a word. You would think every day Joe's there getting the word, getting, you know, healing the sick. doing. Because you put about, I have about 35 divine encounters like that. Dreams, words. You put them in, what, 35, one per chapter, tell the story. You see, the chapter's not that long. You would think every day of my life was like that. So don't get discouraged that every day of your life is not like the apostles. But be open to see it happen. Amen. Lord, bless us as we go to school today and preach your gospel. Help us to be who you've called us to be, not being discouraged, but encouraged by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful day.